Our scripture this morning will be from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, do go to Acts chapter 4, and I want to read one verse to you on top of what you just heard from Matt, which is the next verse after that passage. I want you to look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. And as as we were reading, this is the first persecution that happened to Christians in the book of Acts. Everything's going lovely, beautiful. There's great experience, people meeting God for the first time in their life. And, uh, but then in chapter 4 is the first persecution when they get arrested and taken to jail and there's conflict here. But look at verse 13 and it opens up to us the topic I want to talk to you about. It says, now when they saw... The boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Today, what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about boldness. Okay? Boldness. It's one of the most important topics you can talk about, especially as we live out our life in faith in this world and as we live out our life with God. Boldness. Um, boldness is pictured for us all throughout the Bible. Boldness is being bold for God, His will, His purposes, doing His will, His way, in His time, being bold enough to do what He says to do, even when it sounds crazy. Boldness for me is Joshua and the walls of Jericho. You know what I mean? And God's like, Joshua, I want you to march around the wall one time for seven days. On seven days, I want you to go around it seven times, and the walls will come tumbling down. Now, if Joshua weren't bold, then he would say, God, you are nuts, because that's the wackiest plan I've ever heard of. But because he was bold in believing God, bold in doing God's will, God's way for God's glory, guess what? He did it. Or when God led Moses to take that staff and to stick it in the Red Sea and actually believe that the Red Sea is going to part. See, that's boldness. See, he's like, I'm bold enough to do God's will, God's way for his glory. Even if it's crazy, I'm going to stick the staff in the water and the Red Sea is going to part and a new path is going to open up for Israel. Or think about David, little David when he was little, and big Goliath. And nobody had the boldness to stand up to the giant. A massive man who was so intimidating to the people of Israel. And little itty-bitty David, he said, I'll go out there. It was crazy, but it was God's will, and God had a way, and he did it for God's glory. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go out there and face that giant. And he took those smooth stones, and he flung one, and he took out the giant. You see, to take out giants in your life, you got to be bold. To, to go through the red seas of life, you got to be bold. To escape bondage and to be delivered from things, you've got to be bold. To experience salvation or light in the midst of darkness, you're going to have to be bold. Boldness is key in every step with God. 
Boldness is the inner resources and strength to do what he says to do, even if it sounds crazy, countercultural, counterintuitive, counter what I would originally have thought. I will do and stand for God in the way he wants me to stand for God, no matter what the results or the consequences. That's boldness. Now, where I come from, we call boldness guts, right? Do you have the guts for God? That's kind of what we're talking about. You know, do you have the stomach? See, that's boldness. You got the inner resources, the stuff on the inside to do what God's calling you to do. Do we as a church have the guts to do what God is calling us to do? Do we have the guts to make the decisions we have to do to be more effective on mission or as followers in our life? Do we have the guts to follow Jesus no matter where it leads? Do we have the stomach for it? That's how we would talk about it in Oklahoma. Do you have guts for God? No guts, no glory. But the issue is, how can I be bold? How was Peter bold? We know from verse 13 that boldness and the inner resources to do what God wants us to do does not come from education. It says that despite the fact that Peter was uneducated and common, he was bold and they were astonished, which is shorthand for saying he didn't go to seminary, he didn't have a degree, he didn't have a PhD, he didn't have reverend before his name. They were astonished because a fisherman who days before had never preached a sermon, is suddenly preaching in an effective way and in a bold way for God. He was uneducated. Or you could underline the word common. Greek word for common is used to describe a person who has a regular job, a secular job, and not a religious job. It means anybody who has a job that's not dealing with the temple or with religion. Here was a fisherman, a common man, a lay person who is standing in the gap for God. Boldness doesn't come from seminary or reverend or being the preacher or the pastor. In fact, boldness is not for us preachers. It's for the laity who proclaim the word and stand for God in their world. Luke is lifting up the layperson. Luke is lifting up people who have regular jobs. And he's saying, listen, you can have a boldness in your world, in your time, in your way, in your home. You can be, amen. Let us listen to that beautiful music. Boldness, it doesn't come from education or degrees or, or being uncommon religiously or being religious or dressing fancy or going to mass every day or lighting candles. Boldness comes from a different source. And I want bold. I need boldness, don't you? You see, here, here's the thing. It's so practical. It's so practically needed in our life because you know what? God doesn't probably have a city for you to march around so walls come tumbling down. Can I get an amen? He's probably not going to take you to Lake Michigan and stick a staff in it and create a, a path to Michigan. You know what? But God is calling me when I go home today to speak to my children about God. And that requires boldness. To stand in the gap, to to teach my children about the Lord, to, to make sure that God is central in my home, supreme in my relationship to my kids. And that can be hard. I need inner resources to be bold for God to my kids because my children are beautiful. I took uh, my third child, Allison. On a date last night, a daddy date. And we went out and she got all dressed up and she had a little eyeliner on and she curled her hair. She's wearing a real pretty dress. I had just preached at a funeral, so I came home. I was really excited about putting on jeans and taking her out. And I got home, she had this pretty dress. She goes, I want you to wear the suit. You know, so I had to wear the suit and a tie. Here we go, holding hands. And, of course, we go out and prom night somewhere, so we fit right in with the high schoolers who are out on prom. And we're just like, yeah, we're like a prom date, you know. And I'm taking her out, and we're eating dinner, and we're eating steak. Ah, yes, steak. And I'm looking into her big brown eyes, and in that moment, I just want to give her everything she wants. 
I love, I want her to be happy with me. And I, I just want to, I want to give her everything. She, in that moment at Logan's Steakhouse, if she would have said, I want you to steal something for me, Daddy, I probably would have become a thief. Can I get an amen? <laughs> it's hard. You want your kids to love you. You want them to like you. You want them to have nice things. You want them to do everything like that. And sometimes the last thing that's on the radar in our parenting is, I've got to tell her about About my Lord. I could witness to a guy at a car dealership all day long, but sometimes witnessing to my kids is really difficult. Or what about in marriage? You need boldness in marriage. You got to be bold in how you talk to each other. You got to hold each other accountable, husband and wife, not enabling each other to continue on. I love you. I'll let you do whatever you want. I don't want to get in. I don't want to like bring conflict. Like you got to lovingly speak about God into each other's life. Let's believe God. Let's pray right now. I know we're scared. I know it's not working out. I know the basement is flooded. But we got a God, and He's bigger than water, and He's bigger than a basement, and we got to pray. And sometimes, you know, Sherry said to me before, let's pray. I'll be like, I really don't feel like it. You know what I mean? Let's pray. We've prayed in the kitchen. We've prayed in the living room. But you know what? We haven't prayed as much as we should sometimes. We need boldness. See, standing for God, doing God's will, God's way is, is in these relationships, being bold with each other, being bold like Peter. Some of you, you've got to be bold in just deciding to believe in God, to finally give up on your doubts, to doubt your doubts, to stop being an unbeliever, to get bold and to say, I'm going to believe in Jesus today. He is the staff that, he is the new Moses. He is the stone that will slay the giant of sin in my life. I need to believe in Jesus. And you're going to have to be bold to say, I call Jesus Lord. See, we all need Acts chapter 4 is such a blessing because it tells us in all those verses we read before verse 13 how Peter and John were bold. It tells us how we can grow in boldness. How we can grow in the inner resources to do God's will, God's way, and God's timing for God's glory. Even when it's weird or it's dangerous or it's not safe or it's not popular or it's not culturally acceptable. How can I grow in that inner resources to be bold? How can I have guts for God? Number one, Peter was able to be bold, especially because he lived his life for the message, not for money. You think I'm making this up. This is straight from, I'm extracting this from the biblical text Peter and John lived for the message before they lived for money. Go all the way back up to verse 1. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. The context as we go into verse 1 is that everything's going great for the church. Peter's preached his first sermon. 3,000 people in one day have believed in Jesus and been baptized. They have that community together. Revival is happening for God in the center of Jerusalem. And then you go into chapter 3. Everything's great. Peter's going to temple one day. And there's a, there's a guy who's lame. And he's sitting there at the temple gate called Beautiful. And he says, I need money because he's poor. He's begging for money. And Peter looks at him famously. And he says, silver and gold I don't have. But in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And do flat gets up on his feet. His ankles are strong. His legs are strong. He starts glorifying and praising God. A bona fide miracle at the gate called beautiful. Revival breaks out again. People rushing around. They can't believe what they're hearing about and seeing about. Peter gets up in front of them and begins to preach like he was wont to do. And he says, listen, it's not by my name. It's not by anything else. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that this man has gotten up and walked. And Jesus is the author of life. And Jesus is the new Moses. It's all about Jesus. And right in the middle of this phenomenal move of God, the bad guys show up. Now listen, 
When God moves you up to the next level, sometimes there's a new devil. You know what I'm saying? Every time God is doing something awesome, a current is going to rise up. Like when you're in the ocean and you think you're fine and you think you're close to shore. How many of y'all been to the ocean that's happened? You know, you're like hanging out by the beach. and You're like, I'm not very far. And you start swimming and you're trying not to drink salt water. And the next thing you know, you're like 15 feet away from shore. Has that ever happened to you? Because a surprising current takes you away. Listen, when God is moving in your life, moving you forward, surprising currents and attacks and, and bad guys show up. And right in the middle of this phenomenal moment in Peter's ministry, in the life of the church, in this miraculous moment, in this revival, the bad guys show up. And so in Acts chapter 4, look at it in verse 1, it says... And as they were speaking to the people, it would be like if right in the middle of my sermon, the Illinois State Police, I don't know, the East Peoria Police Department came right in here in the middle of my sermon. Could could you believe this? Of course, that'd make it shorter for you, wouldn't it? (laughs) They arrested me right in the middle of the sermon and took me out. And you would think that in, in a moment like that, people get freaked out, like, oh, my gosh. But as opposed to freaking out, they come in. It says the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees come upon, came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000 people. Imagine that. Even though the preacher is persecuted, the word of God prevails. And that's the most important thing. 5,000 people believe. But note why they are arresting Peter. And that's the key to this point. You see, Peter's bold because he's living for the message and not for money. Look at this, verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus. Underline in Jesus. The resurrection from the dead. So, here's the deal. Not only are they saying Jesus has defeated death and he is risen. They're not just talking about the historic fact of the resurrection of Jesus. They're talking about the application to people's lives of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These people were well aware that there were people who had seen the risen Christ. They're not surprised that Peter's saying Jesus is risen. But it says in the text they proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, which means Peter was telling them, here's the message, Peter was telling them, just as Jesus has been risen, for those who believe, they too will be raised at the end of time. It was an apocalyptic end time message. It was about the end of the world and the coming kingdom of God. And Peter is telling them, listen, Rome is nothing. This world is nothing. And if you repent and believe in Jesus, even though you die, you will live again with a new body. And I'm personally excited about that. I don't know about you. This is a message that young and old can relate to. This is a message that that Jew or Gentile can, can receive willingly because in Christ, a new world is coming. That's why 5,000 people could care less about police or captains or priests or high priests arresting people or Sadducees or Pharisees or anything like that. Because they know, wow, you mean I'm being made for a new world. I'm being made for a kingdom that's not here yet. And yet proof of that coming kingdom is in Jesus and in his name and in his risen life. That's the message. You know, when you live for another world, the things in this world don't have as much value. But if you don't have a new world to go to, and you don't have life after death, and you don't have a view that even though I die, I will live again, I will be raised, I will have a new body. If you don't have that, then this world is all you got. 
And if you want your boldness taken away from you and the strength of your faith and inner resources and perspective of I'm going to live for something beyond this world, if you don't have that beyond this world, then this world is all you got. And all you got is the promises that only the world can give you. And the world never keeps his promises. All of the ads are wrong. All of the products are wrong. You see, the Sadducees, if you go back to verse 1, underline the Sadducees. Let me tell you about the Sadducees. They weren't living for a new world to come. They were living for this world. And the Sadducees had a theology that we would call in our modern times materialistic. Their doctrine said that there was no demons. Their teaching said there was no angels. Their teaching said there was no such thing as predestination. Their teaching said there was no heaven and no hell. Their religion had no concept of resurrection. In fact, they were offended by any doctrine of resurrection. As a result of this theology, this made them radically political because materialistic people always get radically political because that's all they got. They were conservative and they made a pact, the Sadducees, these religious leaders, powerful people. They made a pact with Rome. Rome said, we will pay you a lot of money. In fact, you'll be the richest people in the aristocracy. You'll be the richest people in Jerusalem. You're going to have the fat cat house. You're going to have the Hummer driving down the middle of Jerusalem. You know what I'm saying? You're going to have big flat screen TVs. We're going to give you a credit card that we will pay for. You can buy anything you want as long as you keep Palestine under control. And because they were materialistic in this world is all they had, all they had was their money and the things that Rome could give them. So you see, it wasn't really theological or theology that was bothering about Peter. They're annoyed because Peter is getting people fired up about a kingdom that wasn't Rome. And the Sadducees knew that if Rome picked up on the fact that people were believing in a Lord and a Savior that's not Caesar, then Rome might start taking those paychecks away from the Sadducees. In fact, the Sadducees, if you'll go, go to John chapter 11, And we meet these same Sadducees and their reasoning behind conspiring to kill Jesus. The same people that conspired to kill Jesus are here in these Sadducees in Acts chapter 4. So go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 and verse 45 and following. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, very similar to the crippled man being healed by Peter. People are fired up about Jesus because Lazarus is raised from the dead, rightly so. I would get pretty fired up about that. And the response from the Sadducees and the Pharisees is not what we would think, which is, praise God, somebody was dead, now they're alive. But they're freaking out. And their response to this miracle is in verse 45, where it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary... And had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest, the chief priest were the Sadducees. The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will come Or if we let everyone will believe in him and the Romans, here it is, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, we can't believe in God and we can't believe in Jesus. Why wouldn't you believe in Jesus after Lazarus being raised from the dead? Because Rome will take away our paycheck, take away our stuff, take away our things. We've got to get rid of Jesus. Those same Sadducees with their materialistic worldview are the same ones that are annoyed by Peter and John and they're arresting them and they want them dead. But it's convicting. This is convicting for me and it's convicting for you. 
And the reason why it's convicting is because there's a little Sadducee in all of us, true or false. We live in a, we live in a Sadducean world and culture. We live in a time that says to us, this is all you got. You better get your stuff now while the getting's good. And by the way, the economy's so bad and taxes are getting so high, you better really get it now because there ain't never going to be a chance like there is right now. You better, you better get that house. You better buy that car. I tell you personally, I've always wanted, I've always wanted several different cars. What about you? I saw a Jeep Rubicon the other day. How many of y'all have always wanted a Jeep? I've always wanted a Jeep. I used to sell them. And I went, man, before I die, I've got to put that on the bucket list. Ugh. I love Camaros. I used to have one. I want my girls to experience things. You know, I mean, I, I would love to take them to the Bahamas this summer. I mean, they're only kids once. We get anxious about what we don't have. We get anxious about, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I got to have it. You know what that does? That makes us less bold for God. Because we're living for things that aren't lasting. And what Peter and John are doing is it's not about the stuff. It's not about the money. It's not about what we have or what our circumstances are. It's about the message. They're living for the message of a world that's coming. And you can believe in Christ and have that new world. Jesus said in John 14, believe in God and believe also in me. For where I go, I'm going to come back and take you there. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. I used to ask my mama when I was little growing up, what's Jesus doing right now? What's Jesus doing right now, mama? And she would say, Jesus is building your mansion. I thought that was pretty cool because he was a carpenter. So I figured it has to be a good house in heaven, right? This world is about our calling for God, not about our stuff for life. And I'm not saying that we can't have nice things or a nice house or, or a nice um, a job or, or sometimes God blesses us with a promotion or whatever. Praise God when God gives us those means. But listen, whether you have it or you don't, it doesn't define who you are. You can be something that is, you can be someone who is transcendent, who lives for things that are lasting. Jesus said, don't be anxious about what you're wearing. Look at the birds of the, of the air. Look at the grass of the field. Look at the lilies. God's providing for them. How much is he going to provide you what you need? You lay up your treasure in heaven where rust and thieves can't steal or destroy, and your treasures in heaven will last forever. We cannot be bold until we daily try to evaluate and eradicate and repent because you and I grew up and we are growing up and our kids are growing up in a culture of materialism. We are sinking in the sea of materialism. And we have to constantly, every day, ask God, help me not to be a Sadducee. Help me to be sold out. And I use that phrase on purpose. To be sold out for God means I got everything I need in God. I got everything I need in Christ. I can do today exactly what he wants me to do, even if it leads to prison, even if it leads to jail, even if it leads to less desirable results. I can still be bold, stand in the gap, part the Red Sea, face the giant can stick the staff in that water in the basement. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we have to turn stuff off that teaches us this materialism. You know, I mean, Sherry and I, we love, well, I used to love Facebook, uh, Twitter, Pinterest. We're pinning things all the time. What's up with Pinterest? You ladies are pinning stuff. It's like pictures, pictures, pictures. Well, okay, do that five days a week, but take a couple days off every week, you know? Spend that time looking into the Word and praying and, and receiving the peace of God. Facebook, you know, the problem with Facebook, I mean, there's, there's nothing sinful about it. Continue to be on there. Post me. Like me if you want to. Amen. <laughs> Don't unlike me. Good grief. I'm a pastor. Uh, 
I mean, here's the thing about Facebook. You know, what I've noticed about Facebook is you see only the highlights of people's lives. Have you noticed this? Only the good stuff. I'm on vacation and on a beach. Oh, they have such a great life. Yeah, that beach, they were on three days. There's a whole other 360 days. Can I get an amen? I mean, here's, you know, I mean, I tell you about all the highlights in my sermons. I mean, I went on a date with my child. That doesn't mean I don't struggle in being a dad. See, there's a perspective that, oh, my gosh, I'm missing out. I don't have what they have, and the grass is always greener. Man, just water your grass that you're living by. Bloom where God has planted you. Live for God. Don't be a Sadducee. Be sold out. That's what happened to Peter and John. They're living for the message and not for the money. They're sold out. They're not Sadducees. They don't care. You want to arrest me? You want to take me to jail? You want to walk into my church in the middle of my sermon and take me to jail? Praise God. Hallelujah. There ain't nothing in this world that I need. Standing for God. Boldly means we have to have a perspective that we're living for the message and not for the money. Here's the second thing. I've been preaching so hard. I didn't sit down in the first service. I've been preaching so hard today. I've got to sit down. Um, the second point is this. So not only were Peter and John living for the message uh, before money, but they were filled by the Spirit and not by fear. Every day we've got to be filled by the Spirit and not by fear. Look at verse 5, Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Just put to the side or the margin of your Bible the Godfather family, okay? Because they make an offer that you can't refuse, which is we will kill you unless you do what we want you. There was literally a mafia. They're all related. Annas was like this old dude. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And Annas was really the power behind this structure. He'd been a high priest years before. He wasn't a high priest here. Caiaphas was the high priest. But he's so powerful and influential that Luke's like, he might as well be the high priest. John's related to Annas. And there's grandsons and sons. And people are fathered into this high priest thing and this power structure. And they killed people when they didn't go right, thus, and as an example, Jesus. This is the same group of people that persecuted, tried, and sent Jesus to Pilate. All right, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, literally in the middle, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... Basically, these leaders are the leaders of what's called the Sanhedrin court. The Sanhedrin court was 71 people, these priests, 71. The high priest was the presiding officer. They were the most powerful court in the land. They were composed of Pharisees and Sadducees, which is kind of like Republicans, Democrats. And they never get along together except for in these moments of persecution. And they put Peter and John in the middle. Now, I bet you there's probably close to maybe 75 people here right now. All right? So imagine a court of people, Sadducees and Pharisees, numbering about this group of people. Same Sanhedrin, same 71 people that said about Jesus, he is blasphemed, he needs to be sent to Pilate, we need to kill him and crucify him. Same group of people. And they put Peter right in the middle of that circle. Can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine the fear that he might be tempted by? He's put in the middle of these bad guys, these murderers, these, this godfather setup. And the secret to his power was not his own human resources. The secret to his boldness in this key significant moment of persecution is not his own human resources. It says he was filled by the Holy Spirit for the moment. Now think about it, beloved. Think about it. This is the same Peter who only weeks before when Jesus was in the middle of the Sanhedrin and getting beat and getting spit upon, Peter was off at a distance behind a bush 
watching, not in the middle, but from a distance watching these 71 guys beat the Lord and Savior of the world and condemn him. And he's off at a distance and he's trying to hide and somebody comes up to him and says, hey, Peter, don't you know that guy that's getting beat by those guys over there by the court? And Peter's like, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that guy. Another person comes up to Peter and says, hey, Peter, Weren't you with Jesus? And not only did he deny Jesus the second time, but he cussed. So he said, beep. No, I don't know him. And then a third time somebody comes up to him and he says, hey, I've seen you before. Your name is Peter. You're one of the disciples of that guy, Jesus, that's now currently in the middle of the Sanhedrin. And he said, beep, beep, beep. No, I don't know him. He was filled with fear. And he wasn't even there. He was like, not in the middle, but away from the middle of the Sanhedrin. Now, fast forward, Acts chapter 4. He's not behind a bush. He's not hiding off. He's in the middle. And what is the difference? between the Peter that's cussing behind a bush denying Jesus and the Peter that says, rulers and elders of the people, let me tell you about the name. Let me tell you about the one who can save. Let me tell you about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me tell you about the Alpha and the Omega. How did Peter become this man Not because he was so strong, not because he became the big dog on the block, but because he had the Holy Spirit. He was filled for this moment. That word filled, the Greek word is plesthesis, which meant not like the Holy Spirit comes and goes and like was off at a distance and suddenly said, ooh, I need to hurry and go help Peter. But filled means that the Holy Spirit was in him, but gave him exactly what he needed for that task. And do you know that the secret to you and I being bold as parents in our marriage, speaking for God to people, bearing witness, doesn't have to come from our own sources, but the Holy Spirit is with believers, and he will enable us in the moment for the task. So that we can stand in the middle when we're surrounded by all kinds of unbelief. We can stand there graciously but boldly. Notice how he's very gracious. Rulers and elders of the people. He doesn't say, you idiots. He says, rulers and elders of the people. You're asking me by what power, by what name? It's in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit gave him that. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is with you. He will equip you for every task that God gives you. In fact, Jesus had told the disciples that this would happen. Go turn in your Bibles to, um, to Luke chapter 11. No, no, sorry. Luke chapter 12. And uh, a great passage. And Jesus told them, listen, you don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to do this on your own. Luke chapter 12. In verses 11 and 12. And he said, Jesus says to them, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. What you ought to say. Now, that's the kind of Holy Spirit we have. We have the Holy Spirit who will equip us for the very hour that we are facing. Every single day, every single moment, every single circumstance, He is there to equip us for the very hour we're dealing with. That's encouraging to me as a parent because I tell you, when my kids were born, they didn't come with an owner's manual. Did yours? You can go to all the teaching seminars on how to be a great parent, but there are moments that come up that you're like, I need you, Holy Spirit, right now. Like, what is sex, Daddy? Uh, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. 
But the same thing is true when you're living at the workplace, in the marketplace, when you're trying to take a stand for God, when you're trying to believe God for great things, and, and you're finding it, your flesh is weak and it's tired, and, and, and your, your flesh is, is unable to do the will of God, and yet if you starve your flesh, feed the Spirit in Scripture, in prayer, in conscious dependence every day. As believers, we have the presence of God to equip us for the will of God, to be bold for God. Listen, if you're standing for God, you don't have to stand alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. Peter learned how to be filled by the Holy Spirit and not to be filled with fear. Finally today, how to, how to grow in boldness, number one, um, really live for the message, not money. Number two, be filled by the Spirit, not by fear. Number three, remember you're saved by the name of Jesus, not your own name. They asked Peter, by what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, if you, are you really going to arrest me for healing a guy? Okay, great. Let me tell you what's up. If we are being, uh, verse 10, that was not tongues, sorry. Uh, he's like, man, he just talked about the Holy Spirit and then busted out in tongues. All right. Uh, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is looking at these religious people and he calls them the builders. He's quoting Psalm 118. And when he says the builders, what he means is these religious people were the builders of a religion that was supposed to bring reconciliation and peace with God through their temple, through their sacrifices. They were the priests, the, the mediators between people and God. They were the builders of religion, the builders of faith. And yet the very stone that God gave to people to build reconciliation, the chief cornerstone or capstone, whichever picture you want to go with, the chief cornerstone, the builders who were supposed to be all about getting people to know God, they rejected the very name and the very person that is the only way to be made right with God. He is the only good enough Moses to save human beings from sin and bondage and from being irreconcilable to God. Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Now listen. There are so many institutions and religions that claim to be another way to God or one of the many great ways to God. In the religious world, there's so many different options for how we get reconciled to God. And most of those institutions and religion are about you building your own religion on self-righteousness, your own name, building up your own morality, building up your own, I look religious enough, I sound religious enough. They're all about you building up your name. But listen, the only way we get to God is not by works, not by religion, not by the functional saviors of our world, whether sex, drugs, rock and roll, money, uh, all the things we go to worship to to find fulfillment. None of it gets us to God except for Jesus Christ. And Peter knows there is no other name. There's no other way. And if you like it or lump it, our culture hates this exclusive, absolute. But for those who receive this idea that we can't be saved by our religion or by ourselves, we're not justified by death. You know, yesterday I did a funeral. Every time I do one of those funerals, and I stand in that tent outside at the graveside, and I look at all those people, I've heard their stories, 
buried some great people, buried some people with a good name, but it's never been a good enough name to get them into heaven, ever. I buried my grandfather. He was 94 years old. He was the best, most polished man I know, and his name was a good name, but it wasn't good enough. We lean on our own family name or the religion of our parents or our institutions or we think that we're clever enough or our personalities are enough or that perhaps God will just justify us by our own death. Just by dying, we'll be justified by God. Listen to me. You have to believe in Christ. The knee has to bow to him. There is no other name by which we can be made right with God. And when we believe that as a church, we get real bold on getting that name out there and telling people, here is the way to God. But furthermore, it's important as a church, if we're going to be bold in the right way, with the right mixture of graciousness and zeal, with the right mixture of love and truth, with the right mixture of spirit and truth, Heat and light with the right balance in our boldness, we have to realize that no member of this church, no person in this church believes that they're made right with God and that they're more acceptable to God than another person. We are only accepted by God because of grace and forgiveness, because Jesus died and he rose again, and that humbles us as well as gives us confidence. That reminds us that we should be humble with one another, love one another, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile for our enemy, forgive people because we're forgiven. And what makes us right is not our own name, our own standing, our own strength. Peter knows this. He knows it's not about how polished his sermons are, or he sounds seminarian, or if he has a PhD, or if people are really impressed by the way he speaks or does church. He just knows that he is a man who has experienced grace and forgiveness, and he knows that by this name, anybody can receive grace or forgiveness if they believe in Jesus Christ. You see... We believe that we are saved by the name of Jesus, not our own self-righteousness, not our own works. That's what Christianity is. You know, Christianity is not about moving from immorality to morality. Christianity is about moving from death to life. It's about coming alive to Christ, coming alive to God, coming alive in affection and, and lightness and brightness to God's glory. The name of Jesus that makes us right. It reminds me of a story that a preacher used to tell, and I'll be done. About two dogs, right? And these two dogs. I don't know what it is with dog stories lately, but I love them. But there's these two dogs, and one's a little yipper, you know, a little whoop, 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 you know. And the other dog's like this really big, you know, like, I don't know. We'll call him a bulldog, you know, woof. You know, when he, when he barks, like, woof. You know, do you all have one of those living down the street? Because I do, and I'm going to kill it. But anyways, no, not really. Not really. I don't kill dogs. But there's a big dog and a little dog, and they're standing at a door, and the door is closed. And so the big dog, he feels like the big dog, and he's like, he goes, I bet you I can get through that door, and you can't. And the little dog's like, I bet you I can get through that door, and you can't. And the big dog's like, you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? And the little dog says, give it a try. That big dog, he jumps onto the door handle, he grabs it, he gnarls at it, he's trying to turn it, he's scratching at the door, he's big bouncing up against the door, and he's just, he just wears himself out, can't get the door open, can't open the doorknob and everything like that, and he's just exhausted. He said, well, if I can't do it, I know you can't do it, you little yipper. And the little dog says, watch this. And the master comes opens the door and lets the little dog in because the key to opening the door is not being a big dog the key is knowing the big lord and master who opens doors for little people do you see that and that makes us bold because you know what i'm a little guy will we all admit this i'm a little short dude i know all about being little and i can tell you That when you're little and you sense your smallness, you you sense that you're inadequate, you sense that you're not religious or spiritual enough, all you've got to do is have the name. And the name is what opens the door. It's Jesus that opens the door. He is the big Lord and master 
who receives all who comes to him. So stop trying to be the big dog. Stop trying to be strong enough or bold enough in your own strength. Let Jesus open the doors to new boldness for you. Let him open doors to a new life for you. See, we're saved by his name, not our works. We're filled by his spirit, not fear. We're living for his message, not money. And that will help us to grow and be shaped by confidence, boldness, and courage for God. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are the ultimate in boldness. It is by the zeal of your love, white hot love, that you pursued us in this world. It is by your boldness that you broke down the barriers and invaded this world of darkness. It's by your will that morning follows darkness, that light overcomes darkness. And we thank you that you were bold enough to enter into this world as a human being and to fulfill what we couldn't fulfill, to do what we couldn't do, to die in our place, to be raised for our new life. We thank you for your boldness. And now that it's at work in our hearts and in our minds and our affections, may you help us to be bold like you, not in our own strength, but in your spirit not for our own monetary outcome, but for the outcome of your message, not for our own self-righteous works that we can look at to brag about or boast in, but, but for the glory of the name of Jesus. We thank you for doing it all for us. And now, as an act of gratitude and worship, out of an act of knowing we are accepted, we want to obey you. So help us to do that in boldness. If you don't know Christ, if, if you've never crossed the line of faith, and it's time, you know it's time. God's telling you it's time to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Be bold enough to do it. Bold enough to doubt your doubts. Bold enough to say, I have sinned. Bold enough to say, it's worse than I thought in myself, but I'm more loved than I ever dared hoped. Be daring and courageous to receive what you can't do or achieve on your own. Receive the name of Christ.